0: I have spent this week focusing on worship, and um, the interesting thing is that God has God has drawn me in in ways that I haven't experienced in a long while, and I've I've just it's been a glorious glorious week for me. Um, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because there's parts of my sermon that I'm already wanting to speak, but I can't yet. Um, But for those of you who aren't aware of it, we had uh, the intercessors of our church called for a fast this week in order for us to pray for Levi Rutinski and for his emotional and spiritual and physical health. And God drew me in in that 24-hour period in a powerful, powerful way. And there were some other things, and again, I don't want to get into it just yet because you'll hear it in my sermon. But the whole focus this week has been for me On what is worship? What does it mean to truly worship God? And interestingly, I have been behind in my reading, because I took a vacation, if you didn't realize it, and I would come up with certain things that would come up on my screen, and I'd say, no, that's church-related, and I'd set it aside to read later. Well, I'm now in that catch-up point of trying to catch up on almost a month's worth of reading, because even though... Three weeks of vacation, two and a half weeks of vacation, but I'm still a week now past my vacation, so it's like, it's snowballing on me, so I'm scrambling, trying to get caught up on my reading, but there was this one blog that happened way back, and I don't even know why it came into my screen, but I know that it was from the Holy Spirit, and there was this one statement that was in the blog that I just, it it, it just gripped me this week, and it's where my sermon, the germ of the thought for my sermon came from, so let me read it to you. The guy who wrote this blog, his name is Ben Irwin, and if anybody wants to, I'll, I can give you his, uh, his blog information later after the service. But uh, the quote is, when a church tells me how I should feel, such as, clap if you're excited about Jesus, it smacks to me of inauthenticity. Sometimes I just don't feel like clapping. Sometimes, and this was the word, this was the sentence that just gripped my soul. He said, sometimes I need to worship in the midst of my brokenness and in the midst of my confusion, not in spite of it, and certainly not in denial of it. Let me repeat that. Sometimes I need to worship in the midst of my brokenness and confusion And not in spite of it, and certainly not in denial of it. See, so often we in the Western church think, I've got to put on my happy face, because the joy of the Lord is my strength. He heals the brokenhearted and they hurt no more. Joy of the Lord is my strength. When in reality, you are poured out on the floor, broken. There is no help that can help you in that moment, save the presence of the living God. But you can't let that guard down, for heaven's sakes, if you would cry in public, or embarrass yourself by showing weakness. So instead, you put the little bubble of protection around yourself, and you come to church, because that's what Christians do, And you smile and grit your teeth through all of your pain. And you worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. And you go away just as broken. Just as much in pain. And you feel cheated sometimes. Or at least you feel empty. What good did it do to go to church today? I got nothing out of it. And that's where I was after reading that sentence. God, in my own life, how real am I when it comes to getting into your presence? Do I just go through the motions? Do I really connect? One of the things that was very interesting and very difficult for me over the last 24 hours or so, I was in a fast from 7 p.m. until 7 p.m., Friday night to Saturday night. I fasted. Fasting isn't an issue. Yeah, you're hungry. Yeah, so what? You drink a little bit of juice, you're fine. But they called not only a fast, but two worship hours. One to start the fast, and one to end the fast. And we came, and I wasn't in charge. So I wasn't leading worship. It was my job in this setting to be a participant in this worship. And I'll tell you frankly, Friday night, I intentionally left my iPad at home. I intentionally left my cell phone at home. All I had was my Bible. I felt so naked. <laughs> I really did. Questions came up. I couldn't find the answers. Because i would learned to so depend on the electronics to search the Word of God for me, that that skill is going away. And so God's already been putting it on my heart anyway, weeks ago, but it's, it was very real this weekend that I need to rehone and re-sharpen those skills of knowing His Word inside out, backwards and forward, and not depending on some piece of electronics to do it for me. That was number one. Number two, we were singing a bunch of songs. And I know these songs. And I literally caught myself just going, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how much longer this is going to go on. I got stuff to do, got a sermon to write. That first hour of the fast, I caught myself. This 40-year-old Christian who knows God backwards, forwards, inside, and out, knows the Word of God, preaches the Word of God on a weekly basis, couldn't spend 15 to 20 minutes intentionally focusing on God and the purpose for which I was there because I got distracted. Now, does that mean I'm weak? Okay, maybe I'm weak. But the reality is, I'm a human being, and it's a skill that I have to hone. How many of you Don't raise your hand, because I don't want to embarrass you. How many of you were fully engaged this morning, as we entered into the presence of the Almighty? And instead, how many of you whispered to your friend, or your neighbor, or made eye contact with somebody else, or were fiddling in your purse, or were, or were, or were? Okay, so before you start pointing your fingers at your pastor who can't do it, look at yourself. Who obviously can't do it, because I watched this morning. I won't I won't single anybody out, but I watched. I know who was engaged and who wasn't. And I'll be praying for the ones who weren't. Because it breaks my heart. What it says to me is that I'm not doing a good enough job discipling you. And that is going to change. This is the beginning of it. This is where my heart is. As I searched and thought about and meditated over what possible scripture passage would have anything to do with worshipping even in the midst of my confusion, my brokenness, and not denying it. The Lord led me to 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 13 through 20. Now, before we, while you're turning to that, please do turn to it. Second Samuel, chapter 12, verses 13 to 20. While you're doing that, I have to give, give you a little bit of background information. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. This is the story of David's betrayal of one of his 30 mighty men. One of the people who were one of the one of the honored men in David's army, Uriah the Hittite. David slept with his wife Uriah's wife. David got Uriah's wife pregnant. David Then got Uriah killed, because Uriah wouldn't come home and sleep with his wife to hide the the sin that David and Bathsheba had done. So David not only was an adulterer, and a liar, and a cheat, and a murderer. Then the child is born, because David brings Bathsheba into his house. And the child is born. And then Nathan comes. And says to him this little story about this guy who's really rich and has a visitor come. And so he takes somebody else's lamb and slaughters it. Because he didn't want to take one of his own. And David then in his anger goes, well that guy deserves to be punished. And Nathan in verse 12 turns around and says... I mean not verse 12, but it says to him, you're the guy, that's you, you're the one. That was verse 7. And then finally in verse 13, David recognizing his sin, David says to Nathan the prophet... I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the Son born to you will die. Now it's very easy to read those words and just move on. But think about what happened in David's heart at that moment. Nathan the prophet says, The Lord has taken away your sin. Your sin is forgiven. He's heard you. You're not going to die as a result. Because see, David could have died. For being a murderer and for being an adulterer, he could have been stoned to death. but The Lord wasn't going to hold that against him. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, so the penalty is your son gets to die because of your sin. Imagine what's going on in David's heart. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and the child became ill, and David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, on the seventh day, and what that means is David fasted, and prayed, and didn't bathe, he laid on the ground for seven days. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went on to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. Now, the thing that's intriguing about this passage, just as a side note, is David did it backwards In the culture, the fasting and the mourning would have taken place after the death. But David, upon hearing of the death, instantly dresses, washes himself, puts on his hair tonic, and he puts oils on, and he goes into the house of God and he worships. Totally backwards. Well, when I read this passage many, many years ago, I had written in, the, in the, the, the margins of the Bible, David, and fasted, David prayed and fasted for seven days, pleading on behalf of his son. And then he washed and quaffed and worshipped. And I wrote, what is the difference between prayer and supplication and worship? What is the difference between prayer and supplication and worship? See, in John chapter 4, Jesus meets with this woman at the well, and he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. And in truth. So, I know what prayer is. I mean, I know what prayer is. I do it all the time. I know what supplication is. I know what fasting is. But what distinguishes these things from an act of worship? Or, are they the same thing? I was reading, it is a, I have a great book, it's called The Beacon Dictionary of Theology. It's Wesleyan. I love it. And I thought... I'll look up the definition of worship in there. Surely they have this really easy definition. So I opened it up and it was almost a full page long. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Worship is not that difficult, people. But I was reading through it and there was this really cool quote that uh, Dr. Taylor wrote. He said, the heart of Christian worship is adoration. And then he described this act of adoration as the most self-abnegating devotion of which humanity is capable. I hate it when I look up a definition and they use a word that I then have to look up. (laughs) How many of you know what self-abnegation is? How many of you have ever heard of self-abnegation? I had never heard of it. And unfortunately, I didn't have my iPad. So I had to stop what I was doing and go get my iPad and go, okay, fine, I'll use my iPad because I need it. And I looked up self-abnegation, that great dictionary online called Google, but it came up with this really powerful, powerful definition. Self-abnegation is renouncing or rejecting one's own interests or needs. It literally used the expression, a loving and self-abnegating mother. As a mother, those of you who are, you know what it means to go hungry so your child can have food. As a mother, you know what it means to forego sleep so your child can be nursed or can be cared for when they're sick. Fathers don't. Mothers do. Fathers are selfish. Mothers are self-abnegating. True? True? Okay. So if you want to know what self-abnegation is, think of a mother, of an infant. Now think about your worship, and as you try to honor God and adore God, do you self-abnegate during your worship? That's a powerful thought, For at least it was for me. And you see, it's very easy. There's this, there's this really cool term called compartmentalization. And basically what compartmentalization means is, I compartmentalize, I put into little pockets or little boxes, areas of my life. Okay, so this is my work box, this is my house box, these are, these are my friends box, this is my church box. And so, these activities only stay in these various boxes, these compartments of my life. So, compartmentalization of worship is wrong. Because worship involves all of you. It can't be divorced from other parts of you. When you worship, you should truly worship with your whole being. If we're called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, aren't, wouldn't it make sense that you would also be called to worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength? And so as I had been thinking about this and chewing on believe me, this has been a tough week of trying to chew. I was asked last night, what's your sermon on, Pastor? And I said, you don't want to know. Because it was too much in a jungle still. I I had to spend time from last night till now, this morning, finally getting it all coalesced and sorted through. I had all the stuff, but it was, oh my word, it was like I could not speak it to you last night. There was no way. But I wanted to go back through some of the quotes that I got from Mr. Irwin earlier, that one that said, Worshiping through my confusion, worshiping through my pain. He talks about leaving the church that he grew up in and joining another church that has what's called liturgy. And they, they do the same thing every week. They kneel, they bow, they have kneeling things. They even do the sign of the cross. It's not a Catholic church, but they even do the sign of the cross. They all say certain words together. They, their worship experience is a, is, a, is a group communal thing. And he he, wrote, he writes in, in his blog, he says, the way the liturgy, which is the way that they do church on a Sunday morning, the liturgy invites me to worship with my whole being. And he said this. He said, it bridges the false divide between my body and my soul. And I thought about that. I was like, false divide between my body and my soul. See, we're not just shells with a soul inside of it. Our body affects our soul, does it not? Our body, if we're ill, if we're tired, if we're antsy, it affects your soul and who you are as a person. And he said, in his, in his words, he said, it didn't, it's not that it didn't take me some years of getting used to this, body worship that I'm talking about. It's been a number of years before I could even make myself do the sign of the cross, but now I appreciate for what it is. It's a prayer that my body does. Now, I don't cross myself as I pray, but I understand what he's talking about. How many of you have seen in movies or TV shows where something horrible happens and the Catholics in their in the room cross themselves? They don't say a word. They just cross themselves. That's a prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be with me. And what he's saying in in this, in his own experience, is that this prayer, it actually enters, helps him to enter into worship. This idea is, is that we should worship with our whole being, is not just for Czech Catholics, not just for high church Episcopalians or Lutherans, but he said even Pentecostals practice whole body worship. How many Pentecostals in the room, or how many who have been in a Pentecostal church have ever raised their hand in a worship service? How many of you have ever danced in a worship service? How many of you have ever jumped up and down in a worship service? That's whole body worship, folks. See, it's not just Father, son, holy spirit. It's woohoo! Okay? Whole person worship, Mr. Irwin says, can be faith deepening. Whole-person worship can be faith-deepening. I'll tell you from Bob Sugden, I find it much easier to pray, to, to, to talk with God if I'm walking around. If I'm sitting still, I get distracted. But if I walk around, I'm right there connected with God the whole time. I go for a walk in a path, I can walk through the sanctuary. It's amazing the difference for me. Now, I, it's totally different for all of you, but for me, being kinetic in my activity with God and my worship of God and my praying with God is very, very helpful to me. Now, I also came across another cool blog, and I'm required by his blog to give you this information. This is copyrighted information from 2009 to 2015 on KenCollins.com. Okay, I've done the required thing. Now, I'll give you the information later uh, as far as if you want to look it up. But he wrote, Ken Collins wrote an essay called, Shall We Sit, Stand, or Kneel to Pray? And in it, he outlines five different postures that have been used from the beginning for prayer and how they orient, how they originated, what they're used for, and who uses which one. Now, up on the screen, you see the five different postures from Mr. Collins' website. I'm going to take us through each one. The very first one is standing, but it's standing with your eyes open, looking up, and your hands lifted with your palms up. So praying, standing with your eyes open, looking up. How many of you have ever been caught praying with your eyes open? People say, "Let's pray," and what does everybody in the world do? They close their eyes and they bow their head. Except for me, I don't. And then people catch me not doing it. And I almost feel guilty, but see, I don't pray with my head closed and eyes bowed unless, I mean, head bowed and eyes closed unless I don't want to cause a problem for some people. So I'll bow my head politely to join the crowd, but reality, when I'm praying, I don't close my eyes normally. Now, in this particular posture, he said, this is actually the oldest posture for prayer there is. It is called, in Latin, the orans, O-R-A-N-S, position, which the word that it comes from means praying. By praying this way, the worshiper is acknowledging that God is outside of themselves and is beyond themselves. This posture is used for thanksgiving, for praise, for blessings, for benedictions, and even for just general prayers. He said this is still the normal position that people use when they pray in the Eastern churches, like the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox. If you go into an Orthodox church, they don't have pews. They literally stand for upwards of two to three hours as they worship, even the 90-year-olds. Okay, think about that. This is the normal position used in Eastern churches, also in Jewish synagogues. It is still used in the Western Church when the clergy bless, like when I say a benediction. I stand, and I, and you. What you should do is you should stand as well, with your eyes open, your head up, and your hands raised. Not from me, but receiving the blessing from God. That's what you should do. But what you end up doing is you sit there and is it almost done yet? Okay? Also when the Eucharist, when the communion, when when the when the ple- when the prayer and blessing over the communion takes place, the congregation should stand, eyes open, head up, and hands raised. Now, I'm not saying we're going to start doing this, but this is traditionally what Christians have done for thousands of years. Now, he gives us some examples out of the scripture. Luke chapter 9 talks about it says about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, John, and James with him and went up to the mountain to pray. This is the transfiguration of Jesus, and it says as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as lightning. And two men, blah 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 blah. Um, and then it says they saw him, uh, they saw him in his glory, and the two men standing with him. Okay, so Jesus during his transfiguration is standing. John chapter 17 verse 1 says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. So his head was pointed up. And 1 Timothy 2 8 says, I want men and women everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. So here we have from scripture appropriate, the appropriateness of standing with your head up and your hands up in prayer. That was the normal posture for prayer for hundreds if not thousands of years. Until we started getting lazy. Anyway, we'll talk about that in a second. Next one. Standing, looking down, with your eyes averted or closed, and your hands clasped at your waist. Think about that. Standing, head bowed, eyes either down or closed, and your hands clasped at your waist. What is this saying physically? What is the body saying there? Think about it. This is a traditional position of a shackled prisoner. One who is submitting before the conquering king. Their hands are clasped as if they were shackled with chains. Their eyes are averted because in ancient times, if you were the prisoner and you looked directly at your captor, you were considered insolent and most likely killed right on the spot. This posture is for submission, excuse me, for submissive petitions, for intercessory prayer, for penitentiary prayer. Penitentiary being, I'm sorry for what I have done. Saying a penance or a penitentiary. And so it's, Lord God, I love you, I praise you, I'm sorry, I'm not worthy. As opposed to, I love you Jesus and I worship you, it's I am not worthy. See the difference? Still standing. Luke 18 talks about Two men who went up to the prayer... To, Jesus told a parable about two men who were praying in the temple. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And it said that the tax collector stood, but he wouldn't even look up. But he looked down and he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the type of prayer position that that is talked about in that parable. The third one, kneeling. This is eyes open, looking up, hands uplifted with the palms up, or looking down... With your hands folded. Either way, but kneeling. The other, th- this is a traditional posture for seeking favor. So it became the traditional posture for prayers of repentance or supplication. In um, Western Christianity, kneeling means usually humility or submission. So kneeling became a normal posture for many prayers in the West. However, if you're in the East, it still means repentance or supplication. Matthew chapter 18 talks about the servant falling on his knees before the master, begging him, saying, I'll pay you back everything I owe, and the master canceling the debt. Luke chapter 22, verses 44 through four, 41 through 44, Jesus withdrew a stone's throw away from his disciples. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cut from me. On his knees before God, it's making supplication. One of the things that we don't have in our practice is many, many churches who have worship, have kneeling as part of their liturgical worship. In other words, when, when the pastor or the priest says, Let us pray, everyone gets on their knees, they will have kneelers that will come out of the pew. So that way you don't kneel on the hard floor. Okay? Um, or coming to the altar here and praying is another appropriate and totally appropriate way of of praying in a kneeling position. But the one thing that he said in this, and I had never heard this, but I've lived it, was he said, the secret to kneeling is to not bend at your waist. He said, when you're kneeling, get on your knees, but thrust your hips forward so that your abdomen and thighs form a straight vertical line, and that way you'll be able to kneel for long periods of time without fatigue and without sitting on your heels. So if you're gonna kneel, get on your knees, put your hands on whatever rails in front of you, or just hold them in front of you, but then make your body in vertical line with your with your with your knees so that your legs and your body are all one line and your hips. Your your hips are thrust forward. You will not get as tired. And I believe me, I've done it. I have learned that. Now the last one that he shows is prostrate. This is lying on your belly, looking down with your eyes averted or your eyes closed. This is a traditional posture when you're begging from the king. Favors. When you're desperate. When you don't have the right to stand before the king. It is a traditional posture for desperate, penitential, or intercessory prayer. It is still very much used in Eastern churches. It is also used during the ordination service in a Roman Catholic church. When a priest is being ordained, he's on the floor, planted his face into the carpet, and stays there for a long while. And it's again to show his humiliation, his submission to, to, to the Almighty God. Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 through 39 says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch of me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then the last one, <clears throat> sitting, looking with your eyes down or averted or closed, and your hands folded. I did not know this but I learned this from Mr. Collins. Pews were invented in the Middle Ages by the Roman Catholics. And since the Pro- his words are, since the Protestant Reformation was essentially a Christian education movement with very long sermons, the Protestants kept the pews, even though they rejected just about everything else that they regarded as Roman. And as a result, sitting has become the normal posture for prayer For many western congregations. I remember when um, Alfred and Barbara Hill were here. They were powerful intercessors. They taught me a great deal about prayer when I first became a pastor. And I remember one night. We were all at their home having a prayer meeting. And I got on my knees. And I knelt before the chair that I was in. And I had my elbows in the chair. And I heard Alfred whisper in his loud whisper to Barbara. Let's see how long that lasts. And I was like, well, I'll show you how long it's going to (laughs) last. About 30 seconds. No, about about five minutes. And then by that time, my legs were aching, my knees were hurting, my back was hurting. And so then I got up into the chair and I sat for the rest of the time. But it's not an unbiblical thing. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it does say that David sat to pray. But sitting was not the norm until the Middle Ages, when the Roman Catholics invented the pews, and the Protestants said, yeah, it's a good idea, let's sit down for church instead. But like I said, even today, the Eastern Orthodox churches, they don't have pews. They stand for their entire worship time. And I, I, I would not challenge you to do it, but I would challenge you to think about what it takes to stand for an hour to an hour and a half without sitting. And not fussing, complaining, and whining, but actually focusing and worshiping. So, in general, this is summing up what Mr. Collins had said. Um, Looking up is for thanks and giving glory. Looking down is for submission and humility. Standing while looking up shows confidence. Standing while looking down shows submission. Lying prostrate shows humility and possibly even desperation. Sitting used to content kind of late leisure, or that the person sitting was disabled or elderly, but now it's simply a neutral thing it doesn't have a positive and negative it doesn't doesn't really say anything it's just how we are so this is worshiping with our body now the next thing that i read from taylor said the benefit that we receive from worship and i thought benefit from worship it's supposed to be me giving to god right i mean i shouldn't come to worship expecting anything but what he said was from the human side christian worship is offering and receiving. And his words were, when we attend worship, there's a therapeutic that happens to our faith. Now, I had never thought about that. Honestly, I had never thought. I always, always have had the attitude, well, I'm going to worship God. It's not about me, it's about you, God. It's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me, and if, as if you should do things my way. That's true. It's not about my will. It's not about my desires. It's not about my hopes. But when I come into worship, there is something that I get out of it. You see, first of all, we were told way at the beginning of this sermon, and way back when Jesus was on the earth, no one can come to the Father except that the Father woos or draws. The reason you got up this morning was not because there was a potluck. Not because you do it out of your normal duty. It was because the Holy Spirit of God whispered to your spirit and said, I want you in church today. You may not have even been aware of it. But you came because the Holy Spirit of God was wooing you because the Father said, I want them there. There was a reason for you being here. Now, whether or not you fulfilled that reason would be left up to you as to whether or not you engaged during the worship service. Or did you just draw pictures and write notes and chuckle amongst yourselves? That's up to you. But the bottom line is, and this th- let me let me take you back to where I was on, was it Friday night or Saturday night? I don't remember which. It might have been Saturday night. We were singing songs. We were reading scripture. We were praying and using Levi's name whenever it said, I or me or him, and we were intentionally praying these things, and it was as if a holy hush came on us. And I was very aware of the presence of God. And the Lord was whispering to me: See, I inhabit the praises of my people, I am present in their petitions, I can I can be present when they publicly read scripture. When they are intentional about focusing on their desires and their needs, I am present. And when we sang this morning, again, I intentionally picked these songs a number of days ago, but it was all with the intent of this sermon and where we were going with it. The last song we sang was, let the weight of your glory cover us. If you remember in the Old Testament, when God's glory would come into the presence, into the worship place, they had to stop what they were doing. Because the presence of God was so heavy on the worship space. So there is a benefit to us coming into worship. It's not just giving to God, adoring Him, self abnegating, giving up our own desires, but indeed, we get. We we are blessed. We are built up. We are encouraged in our faith. We are grown spiritually. But that's not the focus. Because true worship is adoration of God, who is the only one deserving of it, and we give up our our adoration without wanting anything for ourselves, but in the end result, we still get blessed. But if you come seeking the blessing, you don't get it. Do you understand? If you come with an intent of not doing anything but blessing God, you'll get blessed. But if you come trying to bless yourself, you'll walk away empty. So let's wrap this up. I started us out saying, I need to worship in such a way that even in the midst of my brokenness and my confusion, not in spite of it and not in denial of it, I am real and genuine before God. And I gave us the example of David. And I said, he worshiped, I mean, he prayed, he fasted, he petitioned God, he was on his face before God in this prayer, I mean, this desperation prayer, he was prostrate before God for seven days. But when the answer was the final no, I'm not changing what I said I was going to do, David stood up and prepared himself to go into the presence of God. I was very conscious this morning of what I wore. Not because I cared about what you people thought, but because I didn't have a lot of clean clothes because we're behind on laundry right now because it's been a crazy week and a half and we're just getting back off vacation. And I literally didn't have any dress clothes to wear and I thought, God, I'll just wear jeans and a t-shirt. And the Lord said, excuse me? You're coming into my presence dressed like that? Yes, sir. Now, I'm not saying that to any of you. I'm saying that this is what God was saying to me this morning. I demand of you your best this morning. Your time. I'll tell you one other thing. As I was trying to get ready this morning, around 6.30 or 7, the Lord said, you're going to talk to your congregation about worship that you haven't even entered into worship yet to this day? But God, I've got a lot to do. I've got to get on. He said, no, you've got to spend time with me. And so I did I made a cup of coffee, I got my Bible, no iPad, and went out to the porch, which is the place where I meet with God. It's my hunkering down place. And I lifted my head, and I had my eyes open, and I began to, in a self-abnegating way, adore my God. No asking for anything, just, I love you. I worship you. You are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of all praise. And do you know what happened to me? You know the very first thing that happened wasn't even 30 seconds into my time alone with God. I was convicted. I was convicted of darkness that was in my heart. And I had to confess and repent of that darkness. You see, when you come into the light, what's the first thing that happens? It's revealed. And you can't come before God with darkness or sin. He won't allow it. So, yeah, that old acronym of how you pray, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Start out your prayer time with adoration and worship. But I guarantee you, if there's anything you need to confess, He's going to reveal it very quickly. And you can't continue worshiping and adoring Him with darkness. You've got to get that right. But once I did, the floodgates of heaven opened. And I worshipped my God this morning in a powerful and glorious way. And it didn't take more than 15 minutes. And then I was back to doing the work that I needed to do to be ready to come this morning to you guys and speak these words. But by giving him 15 minutes, first thing in the morning, my heart was clean before him And I had given him the place that was due. First place. You see, my goal for us this morning, as we're getting ready to close and take communion, was to start us off with some lighthearted singing. To bring us into the presence of God. To hear the word of God spoken. And now to partake of the Eucharist, the communion. One of the most intimate ways that you can experience God As an individual Christian. But before you can do that. Before you can experience him. You've got to enter into his presence. And you've got to. In a self abnegating way. Adore him. Examine yourself. Confess and repent. Of anything that he points out. Continue in your adoration. And then be blessed by his presence. That's worship. My prayer this morning with the worship team was may God enable us to walk out of here. Every one of us saying, I met face to face with the almighty this morning. And so I encourage you and I I implore you. Spend time right now. Worshiping Him. Don't worry about the food that's got to be put on the table downstairs. Worship Him. When you are done and ready and your heart is clean, come and take the communion. And when you're done, leave the space, close the door, and go downstairs to visit, please. Don't stand in the hallway visiting. I'm going to pronounce a benediction. And then you guys... Okay, spend some time with your Father.